Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we have the first of what will be two end of year episodes for you this week. Next week will be the second of those. Uh, today we, we are going to have a news roundup, uh, but then we're going to substitute for our usual question of the week segment, uh, a questions of the year segment. So this is our way of doing a year in review for 2016. And we're going to run through a number of different questions about the year, which each of us will take a crack at answering. So we'll be asking things like, what surprised you the most? Uh, which event in 2016 do you think will have the, the longest lasting impact? And, and so on and so forth. So that will be our middle segment. And then our third segment today will be a brief discussion of Apple's AirPods, which have finally uh, gone up for sale to the public after a long delay. Uh, I've had them since yesterday. Uh, so not as long as some of the initial reviewers, but I have had them. Uh, since yesterday and, and therefore a little before the general public is going to get them and so I'll be sharing some quick thoughts about those too. So that will be what we wrap up with today and then next week we'll do an episode focused on uh, predictions for next year although we will kick off that episode by returning to the equivalent episode last year and seeing what we got right and what we got wrong before we uh, launch into 2017 predictions. So that's the, the agenda for today. News roundup followed by uh, questions of the year and then AirPods discussion. Uh, so that's the agenda. Uh, let's kick off with the news roundup. We have three topics for you today. First off, uh, a second week in a row, I think this is now, of talking about uh, an Amazon story. But um, last week, I think we talked about Amazon Go. Uh, this week, we're talking about Amazon uh, starting trials for its drone deliveries. And interestingly, this is happening not somewhere in the US and in the suburbs of Seattle, but rather it's happening in Cambridge in England. Uh, in a sort of rural environment, uh, judging by a demo video that the company released uh, this week. So uh, interesting to see that finally come to fruition after a lot of talk about that over the last, I think, couple of years now. Aaron, what was your take on that? It, I was surprised at how sort of bare minimum the trial was for them to be announcing it and making a big deal out of it. I mean, if you, the video made it look like this, these are wide open spaces. I haven't been there. I don't know if you have been to Cambridge, mm -hmm. yeah, but... I mean, these are wide open spaces, you know, and there's only a tiny handful of customers involved in this. Uh, I guess I was surprised that such a small, of course, I think it makes sense to do such a small pilot test to, to start working out kinks, but I was surprised they were publicizing it. That said, it's still fun to watch and imagine the future of that. Um, one thing that I'm curious about, though, is if these landing pads are going to have to be a necessary element yeah, of, I suspect uh, they will you know, be. Yeah. yeah, which means, you know, it, two thoughts on that. One, I don't know where I'd put mine. Yeah. And the second thought is, it seems like a great target for thieves, like mm. having the landing pad. So I think that answers the first question. I probably put it somewhere <laughs> in the back of my house, not the front. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, definitely. I mean, if you haven't seen the video, I think what Aaron's referring to is it looks a little sort of. Uh, uh, white square pad on the ground that the drone lands on. It seems to have some kind of symbol on it, almost like a QR code, which presumably helps the drone to recognize where it's supposed to land to drop off the goods. And and this is the point. It doesn't just sort of show up at your front door and push the doorbell and wait for you to come and grab the package. You know, it has to actually set itself down. It's got a big drone has to set down the package somewhere out in the open and then leave again. And, uh, you know, there were a couple of points in the demo video where I wondered whether it was going to make its way around a tree and that kind of thing, because it, it's guided by GPS, but presumably must have some kind of fairly sophisticated object avoidance technology as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about the limitations on this. It probably does work best in that kind of rural environment. It works best, well, it'll only work in places where people have some sort of area that's relatively open where it can set itself down. Um, you wonder how well it would work in wind and rain, for example. Um, so all kinds of things that presumably still need to be worked out. But I, from what I've read, it, it's been trialed in the UK because the UK has been a bit more open to drone regulation and that kind of thing and approved their request to do a trial there faster than the FAA did here in the US. So that was interesting to me as well. Yeah, it definitely feels like they're going to have to be a lot of infrastructure changes outside of Amazon's efforts to make this, you know, a, re a reality for most people. Yeah. I mean, if you live in an apartment complex, for example, your apartment complex will have to have a designated landing pad, right? For yeah, on the roof or whatever. Yeah. 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 Which could get complicated with lots of people living in the same building. I mean, to your point about theft, right. it's already an issue with apartment buildings in New York that Amazon packages get left where anybody can just take them. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, also, uh, 
Interesting. Amazon tends to do this towards the end of the year, sort of as we move into the shopping season, they tend to remind us all how clever they are at technology. And so we saw the Amazon Go announcement. I thought that <laughs> yeah. was probably going to be it for the year. And it was interesting to see this show up as well. So um, in the context of that regulatory discussion that we just had in rela- relation to drones, a um, couple of self-driving car news items this week. Um, Google uh, or Alphabet, depending on how you look at it, um, took Google's self-driving car efforts and spun them into a separate entity under the Alphabet umbrella. So they've, they've sat within the Google X uh, moonshots laboratory, as it were, until now, and they're now a separate entity called Waymo, um, which will run the self-driving car effort under Alphabet. Another change, and this change has been apparent for several months now, but this kind of made it official, is that they're focusing not on cars, but as they put it, on drivers. In other words, they're focused on building the self-driving technology, not on building self-driving cars per se. And and they signed a partnership with Fiat Chrysler around some uh, Pacifica minivans that will go live this coming year um, a while back. And, and that was sort of reiterated this week as well. But interesting to see them kind of spin this out and then be quite explicit about this sort of narrower focus on building the technology. It somewhat mirrors what we're hearing and reporting about Apple's efforts, which seem to scale back from actually building a car towards focusing on the technology as well. So interesting parallel there. Obviously, one of those is a public announcement. The other one is uh, purely reporting from within a company that uh, has not said anything explicitly about cars yet. Uh, The other bit of self-driving news is that Uber launched a self-driving test in San Francisco, where you can now, if you are in San Francisco and if your ride starts and ends within San Francisco, you can theoretically order up an Uber uh, there that will be self-driving if it's if one's available. Uh, they will still have humans in the car to take control as necessary. Uh, and interestingly, and this is where the regulatory angle comes in, Uber hasn't sought permission from the California Department of Motor Vehicles to run this trial and has been wrapped over the knuckles this week by the DMV, which has said they need to stop running uh, autonomous driving tests until they've received permission to do so. So whole set of interesting things there. And then uh, the same week, uh, a taxi's dash cam captured a self-driving Uber apparently going through a red light. Um, and Uber said that the human driver was in control at the time. I'm not sure if that's better or worse, but uh, interesting set of news anyway in the self-driving space. Aaron, what was your take on all of that? Uh, on the Uber stuff, I, I think you know Uber just has this reputation of being really cavalier and this fed right into that. I think when you're talking about self-driving vehicles, you have to be a little more cautious. I, I think yeah. there's still a public perception problem that's looming with self-driving vehicles that hasn't yet fully been worked out. And there are going to be a lot of people hesitant. And the last thing you want is popular uproar, you know, in a way that could play out into legislation. Because if anything regulatory comes down that's too burdensome, it could slow down the progress of this this idea of autonomous vehicles. So that'd be a shame, and hopefully Uber doesn't, um, and, and their brand would suffer too in the process, um, in a way that I don't think it suffers. Right? I mean, being cavalier about, say, taxi regulations in a city, you've got consumers on your side. But being cavalier about autonomous vehicles in a way that makes them look dangerous, then the customers are not on your side anymore. Um, the, the the Google thing was. Uh, surprising to me only because I didn't think that they would give up on making their own cars so quickly. Um, and I'm curious what it was that finally pushed them away from it. Cause it wasn't, it didn't seem terribly ambitious. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the public photos of the, the little, you know, koala cars. Yeah. The koala cars, the little tic-tac shaped cars. I mean, those were, you know, it, it seemed like a pretty modest thing that didn't seem, I don't know. I guess I'm surprised that they gave up on it so quickly. And I'm curious where they'll go now. I I always feel anxious. You know, I feel increasingly anxious about these other bet companies because things have not gone well in the other bets <laughs> this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, you did a question of the week on that. And I'm, I'm really curious to see where this goes next. Yeah, me too. And I think it's probably a good thing. I mean, there is really nothing that Google does particularly well that would suggest they would make better cars per se than anybody else. And, uh, you know, they, they commissioned these Koala cars, but they were very limited. They were, you know, limited in terms of how fast they could go and so on. And they were really specifically designed for testing, not for mass market adoption. And, you know, they had been using Lexuses and a variety of other commercially available cars to test this technology so far. So, from that perspective, um, you know, I, I, it feels like a sensible change, as to some extent it did with Apple. The, the, 
well, the challenge is that Google licenses Android, um, so there's a sort of a logical path forward for them to license the technology here. You know, Apple hasn't licensed anything other than, you know, the MFI licensing program since, you know, the late 90s when Steve Jobs came back and killed the Mac clone program. Um, and so it's a very different business model, as we've already talked about previously for Apple. Um, yeah, the, the, turning to the Uber thing, uh, as you say, it's a very different thing to defy regulation to launch a taxi service, which you know inherently is just as safe as any other taxi service and perhaps even safer if it's all been tracked electronically. Uh, very different to do that with an autonomous driving project where you could potentially kill people and um, you know the, the safety issues are much greater. So it does feel like their cavalier attitude is probably not best suited to this. And you know they've worked very cooperatively with cities and and states in other parts of the country and and you know have another trial in in Pittsburgh, I think, uh, which we'll talk about later um, in the context of our questions of the year. But um, you know it it does feel like this is a mistake by Uber, and it'll be interesting to see how they respond now that the DMV's formally requested that they kind of shut it down pending. Uh, approval, and it's not that the California DMV isn't willing to approve this stuff. They've approved, I think, twenty other projects that are similar. So, right. you know, it's mostly a matter of just jumping through the right hoops. It just seems odd for Uber to do this. Yeah. Um, third news roundup topic, just briefly, is the latest news about another Yahoo hack, under which, in this case, I think a billion user accounts were affected. Um, but by far the largest of several hacks that we've now heard about from Yahoo, yet another one that Verizon doesn't seem to have been aware of at the time that they made the offer and then closed the deal to buy Yahoo, a deal that still hasn't completed. And so this has uh, spurred another round of articles suggesting that Verizon will either pay less or perhaps back away from the deal entirely. Um, so, you know, not good news for Yahoo, obviously not good news for Verizon either. And not good news for many, many people who have used various Yahoo services. Uh, there's a lot of personal information that was leaked out during this particular hack. And so, uh, you know, if you have a Yahoo account, you're quite possibly going to be affected by this too. Uh, what was your take on this one, Aaron? Well, I think the information that was hacked was especially distressing. A password questions, for example, and their answers were part of the, what was what was right. breached. And that, that opens up so many other accounts for so many people because a lot of these password questions like your mother's maiden name get reused and recycled on other websites um you know i i don't see how this doesn't i, I just don't see how verizon doesn't leverage this into essentially a fire sale of yahoo uh, you know i the liability issues are massive now um and uh, I know this is this is one of the from what I've read, this is one of the big sticking points now is to make sure that Verizon doesn't carry that liability over in the purchase. But, right. uh, you know, Yahoo's going to be a, I mean, Yahoo's it's it's a mess right now. And, and Verizon would essentially be buying a mess. Right. I mean, it was one thing to have sort of, you know, a mismanaged web property that still has a lot of users, but declining in value It's something else entirely where this now is a radioactive risk. To everybody who's ever had a Yahoo account, and that's that's a very different purchase. And so, yeah, I, I, I won't be surprised if Verizon still goes through with it. Um, I won't be surprised if they scuttle it. If they do, in either case, Yahoo is basically going to be, you know, a fire sale now, like more than I think ever. And and it's a shame. I, I don't know why they held on to this the the information about this hack for three years. I mean, that's that. Uh, that sort of delay, um, uh, whether it's out of incompetence or deliberate obfuscation, I mean that ought to be criminal. That's you know that's uh, customers have a right to know this kind of stuff a lot sooner than that. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that, that, I think that uh, concludes our news roundup for today. Let's move on to what is usually our question of the week segment, but today is going to be our questions of the year segment. Um, and really, this is our way of doing a year in review of 2016 as we come to the end of it. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning, this will be the first of two episodes that kind of uh, bookends at the end of the year here with next week's episode being a look forward at 2017 and, and also a look back at our predictions that we made a year ago. Uh, so for today, we're, we're going to be answering a set of questions. We thought long and hard about the best way to do a year in review. Do we do it by topic? Do we do it by company? And in the end, we thought it might be more interesting just to think about it as a set of questions about the year that's just gone by. So uh, I'm just going to quickly list those questions for you, and we'll go through them each uh, one by one with each of us sort of contributing what we think the answers are. So here are the questions that we're going to be talking about. What lessons did you learn this year from the tech industry? Uh, what surprised you the most this year in the tech industry? What was underappreciated? 
which company did you change your mind about this year? Which event in 2016 will have the most impact afterwards? And what have you learned from doing the podcast? And that last question came from uh, one of our listeners. I think it was Mark Miller. So um, a whole set of questions there that we're going to work our way through. We'll take it in turns to answer them. So let's kick off with that first one. What lessons did you learn this year from the tech industry? And Aaron, why don't you go first on that one? Sure. I, I think for me, one of the biggest lessons this year was how important it is for tech companies to be a force for civil civil liberties in the United States, but also globally. I, I, my mind is drawn in particular to the First and Fourth Amendments. Um, when it kind of, I'll start with the Fourth Amendment because it's funny. This is a fight that is that has been mostly forgotten, even though it was never fully resolved. But you know, back in the first half of the year, we were having multiple episodes about the about the battle brewing between Apple and the FBI over encryption. And uh, fundamentally, that's a Fourth Amendment protection, right, against illegal search and seizure and this idea that we have a right to privacy that uh, is a right that's been expanded upon by the Supreme Court in a lot of different ways. I think, uh, you know, companies are holding on to this stuff and holding on to more important and even really critical and personal information in a way that they never have before as tech pervades more and more of our lives, more and more of our information is being entrusted to other people and other entities. And companies really are going to play an essential force in this. Um, and they're going to have to fight for it still. You know, Apple sort of won the battle uh, in 2016, I think, in the sense that the FBI was, you know, had to go begging. They, they didn't get what they wanted. Um, but that doesn't mean the fight's over. It's just going to take another case, another terrorism case in particular, to 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 bring it back to the forefront again. And um, you know, I, I I hope companies, tech companies, can continue to be in a place to to stand their ground um, when it comes to privacy. the the other The other civil liberties is the idea of free speech, and this one's a lot more complex. Um, because this year, especially during the, the presidential campaign, we saw we saw a lot of overlap between this concept of free speech and consequences of having an open marketplace of ideas. That's a phrase that comes from a lot of Supreme Court cases. And, you know, when you have this open marketplace, there are a lot of people selling junk and the fake news that um, became a thing and now a, an infamous hashtag. Uh, you know, it's a problem because people have the right to say those things. And tech companies aren't legally obligated to make sure that people enjoy that right um, to say things that might even be really offensive or just blatantly untrue. Uh, and there there have been some complex issues around that. F Facebook just today announced that they've got some vetting tools in place with fact checkers to start identifying fake news that, that's trending on Facebook. Um, but, uh, you know, that's limiting this marketplace of ideas on Facebook. Yeah, uh, uh, Twitter this year, you know, famously canceled some accounts of white supremacists, has subsequently restored at least one of those. And, uh, you know, and it's an interesting question about the president-elect, Trump himself. If I mean, Twitter could, just in one fell swoop, delete Trump's account. And that would require Trump to rely more heavily on, on uh, the traditional media to get his message out. Um, you know, there are a lot of free speech implications in all of this. And, and I think I, I think we didn't really appreciate how complicated it can be. And we'll continue to struggle with this in the year to come. But but tech companies are going to play a central role in this. And it's sad that it, that right now it just appears they're woefully unprepared. I think I think Twitter and Facebook in particular, who have been sort of the heart of this public discussion about fake news and online abuse and and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, they're, it, what we saw this year is that they don't have a very sophisticated response put together yet. They're just figuring it out, and, and they're figuring it out too late. It's going to be hard and messy and continue to be that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I'd agree with that, that the, the power that these companies have over um, communication online and, you know, the ability to either restrict free speech or to shape the kinds of things that we see is enormous. And, um, you know, there's 
uh, a lot of power there. And I think these companies have been very reluctant to even admit that they have that power because once they do, it creates an obligation to act. And so they've been very passive so far in this. And I think what we'll see in the coming months, and as you mentioned, Facebook's announcement today about its solution to fake news uh, is, is the beginning of what we'll see as a more active engagement in some of this stuff. Um, but it, it's going to be a long thing to play out. And I think, you know, the effects have obviously already been felt of some of this in the in the recent presidential election here in the U.S. Um, my answer to so the question again was, what lessons did you learn this year from the tech industry? My answer to that question is um, that it reinforced my sense that narratives are extremely powerful and very hard to change if you're the company involved. And this, you know, something I wrote about, I think it's one of my first pieces that I wrote for the TechPinions website. Uh, it was in April of 2014. I wrote a piece about the danger of narratives in tech. And uh, I used the, the analogy of, um, you know, presidential candidates, ironically. You know, this was two years ago, long before we were in an election. But you know, I talked about Gerald Ford having a reputation for being clumsy and Jimmy Carter being out of touch and Mitt Romney being a flip-flopper and so on. You know, these narratives emerge and then every new news article that comes out, every event that comes out relating to that company tends to get woven into that narrative and reinforce it, whether that's fair or not. This very much happens with uh, technology companies as well. And I think we've seen those narratives play out with a number of different companies this year. Uh, you know, Twitter feeling kind of like it's lost its way and, you know, can't really do anything right, especially when it comes to things like abuse and so on. Um, you know, Apple whole variety of narratives about Apple this year around, you know, them having lost their way about Tim Cook, you know, not being a worthy successor to Steve Jobs and various things like that. Um, you know, a whole set of these things that we've seen and, and they are very powerful and they're very hard to change. And it's been interesting to see um, around some specific things like AI and machine learning. Uh, you know, my sense has been that companies need to show us what they do, what the benefits of AI and machine learning are. But you see article after article, which is clearly based on sort of access to executives and so on within companies that are aimed at shifting perception around AI and machine learning. And there was another one about Google today, and I can't remember which publication it was in, but you know, a lot of companies really trying very hard to change the narrative by talking to the press. And, you know, that helps perhaps, and I think particularly it's, it's challenging to show AI and machine learning. And so you do perhaps have to talk about that more than certain other things. But you know, these companies are actively trying to take control of and change the narrative. And, um, you know, Uber, uh, we, which we talked about earlier, you know, very much has a reputation for flaunting regulation and so on. And the story this week clearly won't help them in that department. Um, and they're not helping themselves with that narrative here, I think. But, you know, these narratives are powerful things. And it's very easy for companies to lose control of the narrative. And it's very much harder for them to seize that control back again and really start to drive the story that's told about them. Uh, it's, it's even harder when things are going badly. It's easier to shape the narrative when things are going well, when things are perceived to be going badly. You know, in Apple's case this year, a year of negative growth for the first time in 13 years, for example. It's very much harder to spin that narrative positively and to change the story that's told. Um, and so you see these very powerful narratives about companies. And, and I, that's just been reinforced for me with especially the bigger companies, but also, you know, the Ubers and, um, you know, Snapchat and a variety of other companies. It's, it's interesting to see how, how hard those narratives can be to change. Yeah, I'll be talking about the Apple narrative in particular in just a minute. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, and there's no magic recipe to this. In fact, a lot of it is just a matter of time, right? When, when a narrative is built up, it, it's sort of like. So I tell my ethics students this in class, that you know you can you can have a ten, twenty, thirty year career of good ethics, built up over many many, right decisions, and you blow it once. And it all goes away. You know, people don't take it on the balance, but they take the story that they care about the most. And I think that's true for a lot of these companies that you're talking about. They, you, know, you can have a, a track record that goes with you for a long time, but, but the story that sticks with people is the one that feels more interesting and compelling, not based on an objective observation of, 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 of past practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let's move on to our second question, which is what surprised you the most this year? And I'll go first on this one, but uh, I'll say briefly Snapchat spectacles, but I want to come back to talk about Snapchat a bit more in a minute. So I won't dwell on that one. But, you know, that was kind of one of those out of left field things that kind of came out of nowhere and was, you know, on the face of it, fairly surprising. Uh, but uh, again, we'll come back to Snapchat later on. But 
um, two other things, and they're sort of similar things, which is Amazon's and Facebook's accelerating growth. You know, there's both companies that have been around for a while now, you know, fairly mature in their respective businesses. And, you know, both companies that you could easily see that they, you know, as they face increasing competition, their growth would have slowed down this year. Uh, and what's happened is that growth has actually accelerated. If you look at Facebook's user numbers, for example, outside of uh, some of the more mature markets. So if you look at their rest of world region, for example, or the Asia Pacific region, you know, over the last six, six quarters or so, their growth has accelerated each quarter. They've added more new users each quarter than they did the quarter before. And that's amazing you know, for a company at the stage in its life that Facebook's at now. And with Amazon, AWS is clearly part of the driver and that's, you know, that's a new part of their business. But even if you strip that out and just look at, say, their e-commerce growth, or, or at least everything but AWS in North America, you know, that growth has accelerated over the past year too. And that, that's, again, an amazing thing. You know, this is a well-established business. We understand what it does. You know, there's not really new people understanding what Amazon does or coming across it as a company for the first time. And, and obviously facing increasing competition as well from traditional brick-and-mortar retailers. And yet they've been able to drive increased growth and increased share of the total growth in e-commerce. You know, it's, it's quite a remarkable thing to me. So those have been some of the things that have surprised me. In a year when you could have expected both of those companies to face slowing growth, you know, they've actually both done very well and, and neither shows any signs of stopping at this point. You know, that, those trends look set to continue for the foreseeable future, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. I, I think ad load will be the interesting thing to watch for Facebook because yeah. it seems like part of their growth this year something you've talked about i think in fact is mm -hmm. you know that they've been they've been increasing the ad load in in the facebook timeline and it's looking like that they've kind of hit the peak on that so that'll be the thing to watch if facebook continues to grow revenue wise yeah absolutely so what was your answer to this question the question being what surprised you most this year in the tech industry it, it was a, it was apple's off year i, I mean I, we knew that one was coming I mean, they they made it pretty clear that financially speaking, it was going to be an off year. I think the, I think the length of it was a little longer than people expected, um, but there were a lot of unforced errors this year from Apple, mostly in the second half of the year. But I mean, it started off okay. You know, we had like the the smaller iPad Pro was announced, and that's been a, a successful and and popular product. It it actually. It actually changed the course of the iPad trajectory in a meaningful way over the summer, um, and and actually got it back to a little bit of revenue growth, um, which doesn't seem like it's lasted. However, um, and you know, in terms of hardware product updates, there wasn't a whole lot else. I mean, there was a MacBook update, which was nice, uh, and obviously the big MacBook Pro announcement toward the end of the year, but that was full of all kinds of unforced errors. Uh, I think the most prominent of which was the battery life thing, the the RAM and the sixteen gigs of RAM was 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 a, a a weird controversy. I think in part because Apple didn't manage that very well. I mean, there really aren't any other laptops like the MacBook Pro that have thirty two gigs, and that's part of the problem with, with Apple. On that is you know they're hamstrung by Intel and Intel's slow progress. Um, but but I mean thinking back on the rest, of the, I'm getting into a rabbit hole here thinking back on the rest of the year you know there was the the series 2 apple watch which was pretty underwhelming all things considered I, you know i i think i th this is the first product that i can remember where there wasn't a big design update between version one and version two in fact that was like a that was a pretty much a clockwork thing for apple and and that wasn't that that wasn't the case at all here. There were a couple of features added that features that, you know, the waterproofing and the GPS and, and those aren't important to a lot of watch users, um, yet took a fair amount of, I mean, a pretty massive amount of engineering to make happen. And, and, uh, and so the watch as a category feels like, you know, the iPad at about this point in the, in the, in the, its life cycle was exploding same for the iPhone. And that doesn't seem to be the case for the watch, which is a little bit disappointing too. And, uh, and, and it, you know, and I just think other sort of communication er errors, uh, slipping ship times, um, just a lot of stuff that, that feels like Apple uh, was, was a little bit off its game. Now, part of the problem is Apple's graded to a much higher score and all this stuff. I mean, that's definitely true in the battery life thing. You know, Apple's had a reputation for years of meeting or exceeding battery life expectations. And so when MacBook Pros, the new ones started shipping and, and, and we're, we're demonstrating pretty consistently 
uh, low battery life compared to, you know, in some cases, users are getting five hours instead of 10, uh, just in normal usage. Um, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty big mistake, even though a lot of other hardware manufacturers, if you got five hours and they promise 10, you just shrug at it and go, oh yeah, that's how this always works. But it hasn't been that way for Apple, and now they're paying a price for this solid reputation that they've built up for execution. I, I you know, I so I think that's what surprised me. It, it's just there were there were a lot of little mistakes and unforced errors. I think that kind of built up this year. Apple's always had unforced errors. Every company makes mistakes, but there was an interesting concentration of them. I thought this year that that combined with you know the hardware products, sort of across the line, not not getting any really compelling upgrades um, with the exception of the MacBook Pro. I still think that was a pretty awesome innovation um, set of innovations, but, uh, but, uh, but it sort of stands out as being unique that way. So to what extent, yeah, I just a question for you there. To what extent do you think these things stand out more because there weren't any big standout products? Oh, um, I definitely you know, if they'd think had that's big, part of it. Big yeah. product launches this year. Do you think the story would be different in that sense? I, I think it would be different. And that's part of why I combined the two observations. I mean, this idea that you know, it was it was a really slow year hardware wise combined with the unforced errors. I think that's the problem. If they're out there doing ambitious stuff, and and a few steps along the way they're missing the mark. I don't think the story would have been the same as it is now. The narrative, like you were talking about just a, a few minutes ago. Um, I, I don't think this is Apple's fate. I really don't. I think, you know, I, I, I think there's other exciting and important stuff to come for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, in a lot of little ways, it just seemed to have, I don't know, like their focus was slightly off. I mean, I guess I'll wrap it up with this, you know, that, uh, that designed by Apple book that just came out, you know, a few mm -hmm. weeks ago, um, coming off as tone deaf right based on it being in a year when i mean it was it's a book full of all these amazing hardware innovations and then it comes out in a year where the only major one that they can brag about is the macbook pro right um you know that that being tone deaf in that even in the moment in the in the, in the heat of everybody saying hey what's going on here that's mm -hmm. it's weird for them to do that um because they they're normally really really good at cultivating their brand and so right. it's so it's just a bunch of those little things and they draw more attention because the hardware products languished a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Okay, let's go to a third question. What was underappreciated this year in tech? Um, so what's your answer there? Um, so this goes back to the question of the week I did earlier. I think I did it in August, if I remember the date right, where um, we talked about because we were getting ready for the watch, the, the, the Series 2, what was going to be the Series 2 Apple Watch announcement. And I think a lot of people at the time, I remember anyway, a lot of the people at the time were speculating about what new health sensors might be in there. And uh, I don't think people appreciate how hard this is to get accurate, meaningful health sensors beyond just what's already out there, right, in terms of heart rate and uh accelerometer and you know the basic stuff that's already been around in fitness trackers for a while i think people underappreciate that this is going to take years and years i mean before we get something like glucose you know blood glucose monitoring um or uh or or or, or you know other measures of cardiovascular health or um you know other indicators like that this is going to be a lot of really hard work i don't think this stuff is never going to show up but i think it's years out and I, and this was a year that i think that was underappreciated and when the series 2 watch was announced i i, I get i got the vibe it's it's finally starting to kind of sink in that yeah the, you know tech is going to change our health um our access to health information much more slowly I think than people realized and there aren't going to be these sort of big surprising breakthroughs in the sensor space when it comes to health measurement. Um, I, I don't think we're going to be stunned by anything. I think it's all just going to be sort of like gradual and then eventually getting into products, but there aren't going to be any big, you know, sudden surprises in this space. And I, I don't think people appreciated this year how hard that, how hard it is to do that stuff. Right. Right. No, that's, 
a very good point. I think it's something that seems like it's going to take a long time. Um, I, my quick answer here is just the fact that there's basically no growth left in smartphones, I think, in the mature markets was underappreciated. And, and beyond mature markets, I think mostly at the premium end of the smartphone market globally as well, there's very little growth left. Um, we've talked about this a little bit. I think we did an episode where one of our questions of the week was about the state of the smartphone market. But the reality is we're nearing saturation now in the US, in Western Europe, in uh, you know, other mature, uh, relatively wealthy markets around the world. There really isn't much growth left, especially at the premium end of the smartphone market. Um, and so that means several things. It's coupled with a sort of maturity in the market, which is leading to longer upgrade cycles. And that those two things taken together mean, you know, that shipments and sales of premium smartphones are actually going to go down in some of these markets now going forward. It also means that the focus has to shift to emerging markets. And I think we haven't seen enough coverage of that, enough coverage of the implications of that. And one of the major implications being if you want to grow shipments in the premium segment of the market, you really have to win share. Uh, and so this is one reason why I think we see Apple talking a lot on earnings calls about switches from Android and that kind of thing. That's kind of where their growth has to come from in mature markets at this point. And so you'll see them talking about that more and more. But, you know, this really affects uh, both Apple and Samsung that, you know, the two sort of premium smartphone vendors. But it also means that the vast majority of the growth in the market is going to be elsewhere uh, at the low end of the market. And the strategies for competing there are very different from the, the ones that, uh, work at the premium end of the market. And so it'll be very interesting to see what kind of shakeout we see among the major smartphone vendors over the next few years as a result of that. This is going to have some really long-term impacts. And it's not a one-off event that happened in 2016, but it's certainly it's a trend that's become very apparent over the last 12 months or so, and that is going to have, I think, long-lasting effects. I think this is a great insight. I think part of the reason it's been underappreciated is because of how quickly saturation happened, historically speaking. I mean, because you look at other consumer tech and it's had a much slower burn. Even the iPod was slower and didn't get the same penetration that smartphones have had. And uh, and I think this is part of the reason it's been underappreciated is because it happens so fast. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to the next question. Which company did you change your mind about this year? Uh, and so I'll go first on this one. And I mentioned Snapchat already, but I, that's really my answer here. And I'll go into a bit more detail here than I did earlier. Um, we had an episode where I did a question of the week about Snapchat around the time that they launched Spectacles and renamed themselves as Snap. Um, I, I don't just don't think I'd taken them or their ambitions, uh, the product that as a company, any of that quite seriously enough. You know, I think I saw it largely as something that was used by teenagers, saw it as a fairly niche sort of messaging app that was used for certain types of communications and so on. And I don't think that's unusual for people of my generation and older. Um, but the reality is, you know, I really underestimated them. I think, you know, they are a more powerful and more important company than I had thought they were. And, and spending some time really studying them in preparation for that question of the week a couple of months back uh, really uh, brought that home to me. Um, and, you know, I think their, their announcement of Spectacles was very interesting. Uh, I think the launch uh, and the marketing around it, you know, with these uh, machines that keep popping up in new places, uh, and, you know, one location in New York where they're permanently on sale at this point. But, you know, I think that marketing has been brilliant around, you know, hardware, especially at a company that hasn't ever done hardware before. And there's a lot of stuff that they've really impressed me with this year and just the sheer number of features they keep adding. I mean, we kind of went through a history of feature additions at Snapchat um, when we did that episode a couple of months ago. But, you know, just since we did that episode... They've launched a whole set of new features since then as well and just keep adding more and more stuff. You know, they really are a company that ships regularly new features and, uh, you know, just keeps adding. They're certainly not resting on their laurels. So a very impressive company, certainly sort of changed my perception and, and my mind about them. I, there is one thing that's worth noting, I think, which is their business model. It's, it's ad-based. You know, they provide very little by way of analytics and tracking and so on for that ad spend that people do give them. Uh, and there are a lot of brands that are sort of either frustrated by that or just take that to mean, okay, this can be experimental ad spend for us at this point, but it's not going to be something that we commit a huge amount of ad spend to because we just can't track it. And so I think that's their single biggest challenge going forward is how they evolve their ad offerings such that there's better tracking, better analytics, uh, better demonstration of the return on the investment there and so on. Um, and so I think that's the big thing they need to work on over the next year is really evolving that, especially as they work towards an IPO. 
Um, but other than that, you know, I think they've really got a lot going for them, and that's, that's been a real revelation for me this year. <laughs> so, what about you, Aaron? Well, when we were writing down our notes, the shared note that we're shared notes we we're using for this to prepare for today. You know, I left that blank. I was still trying to decide what, what answer to give. And then when I saw you had written in Snapchat, I had that feeling of having ordered something at a restaurant and then somebody else came up with a, a, a better order that I wish I had ordered. <laughs> because I think Snapchat's the perfect answer. I, I think that, that would, had I, had I just been thinking more clearly, I think I would have come up with the same thing. But in the interest of, of diversity, I'm going to give another answer. And, and the other company that surprised me this year is Microsoft. Um, specifically about the, how they're going to manage and be competitive in the consumer space. And really, for me, it all just comes down to the Surface Studio. And I realize this is a weird thing to fixate on and, and a weird thing to be really surprised by because I think the actual number of units that they're going to sell the studio isn't going to be that many. But what I, but what they accomplished with that, I, what they accomplished with that is they reinvigorated this idea that they can innovate in the consumer product space even though it's going to be mostly pros that actually buy a Surface Studio and use it because it is pretty expensive. There's there's still that creativity going on at Microsoft on the consumer side that I had taken for dead, uh, essentially. And and I'm hopeful that this continues to cultivate. I think it makes I think it makes everybody's lives better when you have really innovative ideas being developed and 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 produced. And there's a lot that has to go along with this, especially um, the execution has to be there, but I loved seeing the creativity embedded in that one product. And I hope that is cultivated in Microsoft. That was, that was an innovation I didn't expect to see. And, uh, and, and also an innovation in desktops generally, which had stalled for years, if we're being honest, um, it kind of desktop computers had sort of culminated in the all-in-one, you know, in the iMac essentially, or, or, you know, competitors' versions of that. And this was something new and unique that I thought was really cool. So so that was genuinely surprising. I didn't think that they Microsoft had it in them. Where they'll go from here, I can't say, but um, but I hope they continue to develop this and and, and refine this creativity because it's, uh, it's exciting and interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Okay, well, let's move on to the next question, which is which event not as in a sort of a conference or that kind of an event, but what, what thing that happened in 2016 will have the most impact afterwards? And so, Aaron, we'll stick with you on this one. I, I think the most obvious answer is the election. Um, a change in administration, especially from one party to another, is pretty unique. Trump, in this case, is not is not by any means an average Republican, so there's a lot that's, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty because it's going to be hard to know how he'll make choices. And the way this will play out in tech is going to be fascinating. I, I mean, that uh, that tech leader summit that he had yesterday um, didn't reveal a lot of information except for the fact that it revealed he wasn't going to be as antagonistic toward tech companies as it appeared he was going to be. I mean, he had you know, spoken out on privacy issues that companies need to be more forthcoming with law enforcement. He had spoken out about manufacturing issues and and a lot of companies being scared of producing overseas and then importing to the U.S. Um, but he was really friendly and congenial with tech, with all those tech leaders yesterday, which is a good thing. But there are a lot of other ways that this can have far-reaching impacts. Uh, Tom Wheeler, the chairman of the FCC, just announced today that he's going to be stepping down in January after the inauguration, and that means uh, the then-President Trump will be appointing a replacement. Tom Wheeler's been very net neutrality friendly and has in fact gone toe to toe with some of the big tech companies in consumer interests. And now um, there's going to be a dramatic change there. And a lot of that stuff may get rolled back or it maybe it won't. And maybe it'll get reinforced. I think, I think the uncertainty there is, is, uh, is one of the things that made this year. So that made the election from this year so important that my runner up answer here is uh, and it seems like a small thing to to bring attention to is Uber doing their self driving test in Pittsburgh. I, I really think the future of autonomous vehicles is in services, not in products. I think I think people more and more people as the years go on are going to be subscribing to self driving car services, and not actually own their own vehicle. And this this Uber uh, test in Pittsburgh that that started off the, earlier this year. Um, that's the beginning of that, and that's that's 
what needed to happen next was the idea that they could actually do that. And, and granted, there's a driver and engineer in every car uh, during this test, but again, that's just the process and this is what it's going to take. And I think we'll look back on that um, as the beginning of a pretty massive change to our infrastructure when it comes to the ways we get around. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, I think your election answer is the obvious one when it comes to the single event that will have the most impact. I think um, I, I agree on your second point too. I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff in self-driving cars that's going to turn out to be significant, not yet clear in what way. And we talked about Apple and Alphabet both refocusing their car efforts around the technology rather than building cars. And that may be a very good thing for both companies. It may allow them to focus and move forward in a way that they, they couldn't previously uh, and so it may end up being the thing that kind of breaks the, the camel's back and they can you know, move forward and, and do very well in this space. It may end up being the wrong answer. Uh, it may be that uh, car companies make enough progress on their own that they don't feel the need to license this or that at least the big ones do and ends up being a very sort of niche opportunity serving smaller car manufacturers with self-driving technology and therefore that this decision ends up setting Apple and Google back in this space and meaning they don't participate in a meaningful way. I think it could still go either way, could end up somewhere in the middle too. But I think there's a whole set of these things, whether it's Uber, as you mentioned, or or those various decisions by those companies, and I think could have lasting effects. I think one interesting other one to throw in here is just uh, Nintendo's two mobile uh, efforts this year. So uh, Pokemon Go, obviously, they have a, a sort of minority stake in, but you know it certainly uh, leverages Nintendo's strengths. And then obviously the Super Mario Run game that just debuted today, you know that's their first real mobile game. Um, and you know, I think both of these things could be pretty significant this year for them and, and generate a certain amount of revenue. And, and to the point earlier about narrative, start to change the narrative at Nintendo about their future and so on. Uh, but I suspect you know, if these things go well, and certainly indications are they will go well for them, could spur a real change in strategy at Nintendo and that can end up being very significant for them. So no huge market impact necessarily, but I think uh, you know, from a Nintendo perspective, their, their fortunes could potentially change quite significantly off the back of those two things. Um, so we have just one last question. This is, again, the one that came from one of our listeners, but I think it's a fun one to end with, uh, slightly sort of meta because it's, it's not about the tech industry, it's about the podcast itself. But uh, the question here was, what have you learned from doing the podcast? And Aaron, I'm going to let you answer that one first. Yeah, I had two things to say. The first is, I, I've learned and, and gained a deeper appreciation of how there's there's a lot more to every story than what we're getting in the tech news. Um, you know, running a, a tech news website is about just volume. You got to get stories out, and there's not a lot of time to to dig in and understand. And I think the the episode of the podcast we did that speaks to this idea of a of a deeper story behind every story is the question of the week that I did on conflict minerals, mm. you know, the, going, yeah. going back and doing the research on that and finding out like who the advocates are in this space, what the particular minerals are and the issues unique to each of those minerals, um, whether it's geography or politics or environment, um, or whatever, uh, you know, that was, that was really enlightening for me. And, uh, and it just it makes me wonder how many of these other deeper stories we miss on a regular basis. You know, sort of the real story behind the story. Um, that I think doing the podcast has helped me appreciate that more. The other thing I've enjoyed is just getting to know more people through the podcast, which is a weird thing to say. But, you know, through Twitter and other social media outlets, I've gotten to know a few listeners. And I've really, really enjoyed that. Um, I, that's been a really gratifying experience. And these are people I wouldn't have gotten to know if we weren't doing this that's been fun great yeah mine it's interesting mine's sort of related i think it's in both of these i think to some extent about our question of the week segment which isn't the whole podcast obviously but it's sort of usually the central segment um but i think the thing that i've learned is that you know it's sort of a counterpoint to what you were saying i mean you were talking about how um you know you often don't get the deeper story and, and mine's the counterpoint to that which is if you're willing to put forth the effort you can learn a lot uh, and actually get quite deep into something if you want to try and you mentioned conflict minerals which was you know other than your background in ethics you know it's not necessarily something you knew a lot about ahead of time but you did a great job of kind of researching that topic and coming back and telling us about it and helping us to learn about it and 
Um, you know, we do this because we have this segment to fill every week and we take it in turns <laughs> right. to do that. Um, and so we have this strong incentive to do it and, and, you know, we need to spend the time to do that. And it doesn't take an enormous amount of time, though, you know, and I don't know. It varies clearly from week to week. And, and sometimes I'm able to largely go off the back of what I already know and pull in some additional data points. It certainly helps if you have a foundation and a topic. But, um, you know, it's been... I think heartening to me to, to remember how powerful the internet can be in learning about new things and, and uh, actually gaining a deeper understanding and a knowledge about a topic that you don't know very much about uh, and how quickly you can do that if you have the incentives and you're willing to take the time to do it. And so we have these remarkable resources available to us where you can learn about almost any topic that you want to at a deeper level. You can go beneath the headlines um, and you can then share that and I have a particular topic that I've been spending a lot of time on recently that I haven't really talked about publicly and I'm not quite ready to do it yet. But, um, you know, I've, it's something I need to learn about for my work. And, and I'm realizing I'm probably not the only person in the tech industry that needs to learn about this topic right now. And I can either keep all of that to myself and basically just share little dribs and drabs as it's relevant to other stuff that I'm doing, or I can make a conscious effort to kind of share my learning process. And so I'm working on something that hopefully will allow me to do that uh, going forward with this particular topic. But it's just, again, a reminder that, you know, it is possible as an outsider to an industry to come in and, or, or a part of the industry, more typically for us, to come in and learn about it enough to talk about it with other people and help them learn something too. doesn't mean you're the expert on the topic by any means, uh, but it's been fun to, to kind of do that and to learn more about some of these topics as well. Yeah, that's really true. All right. Well, let's wrap up that uh, questions of the year segment there and uh, just spend a, a few minutes talking about Apple's AirPods. And, and we could have just wrapped this into the news roundup at the beginning, but there's a bit more to talk about here because I've had some time with them over the last uh, sort of 48 hours or so. Uh, but we just wanted to talk about these AirPods. Apple announced uh, when they announced the iPhone without a headphone jack, it was sort of a key component of that whole announcement about moving away from legacy technology and towards new technology. And yet, you know, shortly after everything was announced, it became clear that they wouldn't ship on schedule and we had roughly a two-month delay until they are finally uh, available for order now and starting to ship next week. And Apple sent out review units to a number of people that didn't get them in the first round uh, this week. So I got mine yesterday on Tuesday, uh, Wednesday morning, excuse me, and uh, have been using them since fairly constantly, actually, while, at least while I've been at my desk. And uh, so I want to talk about that a little bit. But we also want to just talk about the, the shipping delays and everything else. So, Aaron, I'll let you talk about a little bit first, kind of your view on this. I mean, it fits into your off-year thing that you were talking about <laughs> right. earlier. Yeah, it, again, it feels like an unforced error. If not in the engineering side, I totally appreciate how hard these things could be to make. But definitely in the messaging side. Apple typically, especially when it comes to shipping times, they typically under-promise and over-deliver um, so that way people are delighted to get things early, even if Apple knew all along <laughs> right when it was going to be showing up. Um, that that said, I, I think it's cool that some people are going to get these for Christmas because it was looking pretty bleak that way if this was something that you'd had your heart set on for yourself or for a loved one. And I think that's great. Those ship times slipped into January really quickly, though. So obviously, yeah. they're still having tr trouble with volume production here. I, you know, I, I have a question for you about them since you've been using mm. them for a day. Um, how, you know, how mature of a product do they feel like to you? I mean, this is their first. This is a new product line, really, if we're being honest about it, because there's enough sophistication in the technology here. I mean, sure, they've had headphones before, but this is a different category, in my opinion. Um, yeah and really a new product that I, that I expect will continue to mature. Um, and, uh, and I'm curious, like how mature do they feel to you since you've been trying them out? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, um, the answer is they feel pretty mature. Um, you know, there's certainly some areas where they don't and, uh, I'll talk about those, but, um, you know, on the whole, it feels like a really solid product. It doesn't feel like sort of a V1 product that's got all sorts of problems and shortcomings. You know, for the most part, it does exactly what it's supposed to does it very well certainly does it better than the vast majority of the other products in this category that I've, I've used and tested and so on. Um, you know, so from that perspective, it's, you know, really good. Um, I think the one area where that's not the case is, is control. Um, and so they do very well once you're doing something. But if you want to control what you're doing, um, that's the challenge. Uh, because you can't, you can't, by default, pause skip a song, change the volume or anything else uh, by touch. You have to do all that stuff either by pulling out your phone, by using your watch if you happen to have an Apple Watch, 
uh, and it's in, in either case it might well be several taps away to, to get to what you want to do um, or you have to use Siri and uh, you know that's not always going to be either appropriate or convenient to do you know if you're trying to turn down the volume chances are it's you're being something's too loud you want to uh, you know, interrupt something, you want to, you know, turn something down, like the last thing you want to do is start talking at that point, potentially. Um, and so, you know, that's the one thing that's a bit frustrating. And, and paired with a watch, it actually works really well. And you can have a, a music complication on your watch face if you use, say, the modular face, for example. Uh, and that gives you very quick access to music controls. And that's a really nice way to control it. But by definition, many people won't have a watch to control it with. Most people are going to be using just an iPhone. Um, and, and we'll have to pull it out of their pocket, which means you know, one of the sort of core value propositions of having wireless earbuds goes away. Um, so that's the one area where I'd say you know, things are a little um, short relative to where they should be, and it feels like there, there may be some innovation to come there in future in terms of how you control them and that kind of thing. Uh, but other than that, really solid. The audio quality is great. The, the pairing, I mean, I, I took a video at the launch event of the pairing process, and... Uh, I think it started out just on Twitter, and then uh, I put it, posted it to YouTube as well so I could embed it in my review uh, of the iPhone. And uh, that, that YouTube video, which is just a, like a 19-second video, um, has 44,000 views. <laughs> it has yeah. like at least 10 times more views than any other video I've ever posted to YouTube. And uh, then the reason is just it was just so powerful. So I had my Twitter was going bonkers for two days afterwards, and people saying this is amazing, this is amazing, and a few people saying what a waste of money. But um, you know that the pairing and everything, and the way it stays paired, and the way you switch between devices and so on is very, very good. And a really well thought out gets over almost all the frustrations with Bluetooth. Um, you know, so that's very nice uh, that you pair it with your iPhone and then your your uh, Mac knows about it, your iPad knows about it, your Apple Watch knows about it. And so on any of those devices, if you want to change the audio output to something else, to, to the AirPods, uh, it shows up on the list and it names it your AirPods. So Jan's AirPods, in my case, has a little battery indicator as well. Um, you know, so that's really nice. Um, the audio quality is very good. It sounds amazing. I'd say it sounds better than the AirPods do. Um, stays in your ear really well and, and I literally had them in for most of the day yesterday I've had them in for most of the day until we started recording today as well um, you forget that you have them in uh, they don't get uncomfortable like a lot of earpods and, and, and headphones do after a while uh, you know they, they are very comfortable they stay in very snugly they're ever so slightly larger than the earpods are both at the top and then the stem is quite a bit wider as well and I think that may help them to stay at least in my ears a little bit better uh, also means that the the um, the, uh, what's the word, the fit in the ear is that much snugger and so that I think more of the sound goes into your ear rather than escaping as well, which is another interesting thing. Um, but yeah, it does you know take one ear, earbud, uh, AirPod out and it pauses the music or whatever you're listening to, put it back in and it picks back up again. Charging is incredibly quick, so when they arrived they were not much charged at all, they're about 15% charged or something, which is a bit surprising because usually Apple devices out of the box are, are pretty highly charged. Um, and I thought, oh, that's frustrating. You know, I have to wait for ages for them to charge now. And so I just popped them back in the case and did something else for a few minutes. And I think I dropped my kids off at school and came back again, and they were at 90%. So uh, they charged fully in, by what I can tell, about 20, 25 minutes. So um, very quick to charge. And you get four or five charges out of the little case that they come in without having to plug that in again. Um, and so you could easily go several days uh, without charging anything uh, explicitly, without plugging anything in anyway, and you just pop them back in the case when you're done. Um, so yeah, mostly my perception would be very, very good so far. That's awesome. I I wonder. Um, so I mean, you're talking about fit. Would you? How confident would you feel, say, going for a run or doing something else, you know, athletic with them? And yeah, that's the one thing I haven't had a chance to try yet. I have this knee injury that I've had for a while and flared up about a week and a half ago, and so it means I've been less active than usual. And, and it's, the one thing I haven't been able to test is go to the gym and get sweaty and see how that feels. I have been using, you know, partly in preparation for this, partly just in general, been wanting to try out more Bluetooth stuff recently, uh, a couple of other pairs of Bluetooth headphones, and I have one that's sort of a wraparound one, kind of fits over your ears and goes around the back of your head, and I find that very frustrating if I'm working out because I get sweaty all around the band. And trying to kind of, even if you have a towel or something, trying to kind of clean yourself up a little bit, it's really hard when you've got this sort of cable that goes around your head. And, and that's obviously not going to be an issue with these. Um, but I'm curious to see kind of how it feels in the ear if it gets kind of squishy as you start sweating and so on. So that's something I still need to try. Um, but yeah, I haven't tried kind of running around or anything, but they do feel like they're in there pretty snugly. And as I say, you forget they're even in there. Um, they do seem to fit in there really very nicely. But I'm, I suspect as with ear pods, 
there's there are going to be people for whom that isn't the case they're either missing that little flange on the ear that helps to keep these things in or otherwise you know ear a different shape from what apple are expecting and uh you know they're not going to stay in as well so your, your mileage may vary but in general they feel like they're going to fit and stay in very well well that's really encouraging in fact i'm finding myself warming up to these i, I wasn't a, a skeptic of them by any means i just didn't picture myself buying them but yeah you're starting to sell me a little bit <laughs> i will say there's no getting around the fact that you look like a nerd i think there's just no avoiding <laughs> right. that my wife came in and i was wearing them and she said oh my goodness <laughs> you know, unless i see a really cool apple commercial that changes my mind I, I don't think i'm gonna you're gonna convince me that these don't make you look like a nerd so um you know it's i did feel a little self-conscious when i went out in public wearing them earlier there is definitely an element of that. But, you know, you look like that with the Bluetooth headset on as well. These just look, they just look, what's the best way to describe this? I feel like Apple went with continuity right. uh, in that they look almost just like earpods without cables. Right. Uh, and that's nice because they look familiar and so when people kind of know what they are. But it also looks really weird because you're expecting a cable and there isn't one. And so, and you're wearing two of them and it just, there's something about it that I wonder if going for continuity over originality may have kind of hurt them rather than helped them here. But, uh, you know, they're, they're really solid in terms of performance and so on. I think everything other than the control and then the way they look, I think I, I'm very positive on these. That's great. All right, well, let's finish up. We're just at the hour mark here, which is about as long as we ever like to go with these. So uh, thanks for listening. If you've stuck with us all the way through, again, we'll have a, a year in preview uh, episode next week. Looking forward to 2017. And that will be our last episode for the year. And we'll be back in January. So thanks again for listening. We probably won't have too many show notes this time around because uh, most of what we've been talking about is more general than specific. But uh, we'll uh, look forward to being with you one last time this year next week and, uh, and wish you all a happy holidays as well. Thanks.